thank you for doing this today. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the beat. Dr. Sanjay Karani, hospital medical director. Correct. Of Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. That is correct. <laughs> How are you doing, Nick? Good. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me on today. We're always on, in the hallway talking. Yes. And I always feel like we're doing a, a podcast in the hallway. So here we are finally doing it. Huh? Getting it on the record. For yeah, I love it. I, I'm so excited to do this today because what we're talking about today is, um, you know, some of the uh, research that's gone into ABCM score, we'll get more into that, mm -hmm. um, COVID research and the way that trends are happening with variants. I'm not the medical guy. That's your job. So yeah. um, I'm excited to get to hear from you today, ask questions and really help to even further educate the public more on all of the wonderful research and care that's coming out of our hospitals and clinics here at uh, Santa Clara Valley Healthcare. But yeah, I'd love to first get to know you a little bit sure, and hear about uh, your backstory in coming to this hospital. I was born in Boston, actually, and and uh, came out to the Bay Area when I was a kid. And uh, and my journey towards healthcare, it's a funny story. I was this like vegetarian kid, right? Growing up Indian. I didn't have, you know, we didn't eat much meat in the house, actually. None, um, being of Gujarati descent. And, um, and I remember just being this skinny kid and reading every single book on how to be more athletic and gain weight and gain muscle. And that actually was the beginning of me getting very interested in, in nutrition and physiology and things like that. It started that way. And um, ultimately, I went to Berkeley for undergrad and studied molecular cell biology and, um, and continued just reading more and more and more about sports physiology. Um, I was on, I was rowing crew for their lightweight crew over there. And so did start eventually adding more fish and chicken to my diet there. Um, but really, really got interested even more and more into, into just how the human body works. And I think naturally what happened is I, I wanted to go into medicine as a result. It just made sense to me. But interestingly, at the time I was taking some business courses at Berkeley and that came very naturally to me as well. And so um, ended up going to USC for med school. And while I was at SC, I remember um, my dean, because USC LA County Hospital is, a, is, a, is the largest, um, well, at that time was the largest public hospital in, in California. And I remember, you know, we took care of a very, very vulnerable group there, um, the east side of LA. And I remember my dean, coming up to me when I was a medical student and saying, hey, you know what, just spend one year of your training at a public hospital, if you can, like you're after med school, because that's where, that's the genesis of medicine, basically. It comes from areas where, you know, uh, from the ground up, um, charitable organizations, you know, people who a lot of times volunteer their time to be able to help others. That, that's the genesis of medicine, if you think about it, the roots, it should be coming from that. And, and, and he felt like a public hospital encompassed that. And I applied to Santa Clara Valley Medical Center for my internship and residency, just thinking I would, uh, I would do at least, you know, three years here at a public hospital and, 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 uh, and then go from there. And well, Nick, here I am 25 years later. So obviously I had an incredible impact on me you know, doing my training here, 
uh, just seeing how the hospital was run, the management of the hospital, uh, just the incredible um, support this hospital gets from a lot of the leaders, including the community, or excuse, excuse me, the board of supervisors, as well as the community, how much the community really relies on this hospital, but also uh, supports it too. So, and it being a teaching facility, it just, um, it just has been great for me to be here. And then of course, taking over hospital as hospital medical director, that's kind of a little bit of that business side of me, how to keep operations going. And, and, and this has been a great place for me to grow and learn. What a wonderful origin story, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with your permission, we'll have to share your ID photo, since you have always had the same ID photo. I have. Right? <laughs> uh, you want to see this? Oh, wait, it's on my here. It yeah, this it. is amazing. Uh, it truly, <laughs> so this, this is place. Me. Is, Every, yeah, so this is. Uh, we'll get a close-up of that. Yeah, there you go. That's me as an intern right there. It's <laughs> and like, I said, we'll have to, we can update your photo. And you said, no, we're going to keep it the same. No, I'm going to keep it the same. <laughs> the, the plan is to keep it all the way until I retire. And, and it's a funny story. I thought about, you know, having a new uh, a badge like 10 years ago. Um, and I was going to get rid of it. And I just thought to myself, no, another year, another year. And then it just became a joke with the residents. Cause I, I, I'd be able to, every time I, um, I'm on, uh, the wards with the house staff, you know, the residents and interns, um, this is my way of connecting with them as, you know, I used to be one of you a long time ago, yeah. you know, and I know what it's like just doing those long hours. It is, it's a rough road, but yeah. definitely well worth it. Well, it's very inspiring to see um, all the years that you've put in and your passion for being here at the hospital just continue and probably grow stronger as well. Um, like I said, today I'm excited to you know get on the record all of the things that we've discussed many yeah. times in hallways, talking about you know the pandemic and the research that went into it behind the scenes, looking how we were going to care for patients in the heart of this pandemic at the beginning all the way to even today. But again, like I said, this podcast was really geared towards highlighting research, highlighting patient care. And today we're, you know, combining both of those. Yeah. And so where does it begin? Well, when I remember when, you know, COVID started, um, we were hearing about what was happening in China, then ultimately in, in Europe, and then eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in New York. And so, you know, even to this day, it traveling kind of from east to west. Um, you can almost look a little bit in a crystal ball as to what's going to happen a lot of times when you're looking at what's happening in on, on, as you go further and further east. Uh, specifically, we look at the UK a lot of times. Uh, you know, we saw what was going on with South, South Africa before Omicron. So you can almost see what's happening when when you look out, out, um, out east. And so when COVID first hit, in March of 2020, you know, we were bracing for this tsunami. We didn't know what this tsunami was going to look like, right? Novel virus, um, you know, nothing in, in, in any of our med school books to really describe what, what we should prepare for. But what we knew is, you know, it was hitting China very hard. And then eventually um, it was hitting uh, Europe. Um, especially, uh, I think it was the Lombardy region of, of, of Italy. Um, and then it hit New York. And so once it hit New York, I felt like, you know, I had chance to speak to some of my colleagues who are there so we could prepare over here because we're kind of flying blind. 
And I spoke to one of the medical directors of a hospital over there, and I said, what are you, what are you seeing over there right now? Is it as bad as they say? And he's like, you know, what's interesting is it's unlike what they're describing in Wuhan and in Lombardy, where you're really thinking it's these kind of older patients that are decompensating, especially in Lombardy. Um, he's all, what I'm seeing here is a lot of folks who are in this vulnerable group a lot of them who uh, are just a little bit obese, not terribly obese, a little bit obese, many who are African-Americans, uh, those who are brown population as well, um, and a lot of men. Those are the three things he said. And, uh, and he's like, and, and in addition, it's not, as, it's not these people that you think of that are like 85 years old that are dying. It's we're seeing a lot of 56-year-olds, 50 to 60-year-olds as well. I said, that's, that's really fascinating because that, that's a lot of our population here. And um, especially the brown population here in, in Santa Clara County, which would be a lot of our Hispanic Latinx population here. And I remember when it first hit here, um, bracing for potentially this, this sa the same characteristics coming in, but not really knowing, are we going to get people who are kids that are sick coming in? Are we going to get adults? What are we exactly going to get? And the hardest part, Nick, to the whole thing is we really didn't have something that would tell us a per person's particular risk of getting really sick, right, when coming in and how many beds we'd need and so on. So what was fascinating, one of the first things we did, now we had to open up our command center. We have this thing called our medical branch, which is structurally part of the command center that helps with policies, you know, what type of testing we should be doing, what type of uh, uh, PPE we should use, isolation, a whole bunch of things. It was a bunch of medical leaders that we put together, basically almost like a think tank, looking at the literature, looking at guidelines from the CDC and public health department. And early on, we didn't have those guidelines yet, right? We, as I said before, we're still flying blind. But what we did have was a lot of data already in the hospital. And so what we did is we teamed up for that with our analytics team so that if we had a question, could we find the answers in the data very early on before academia could come out with a lot of the, 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 the answers or waiting for CDC public health department guidelines. Um, but one big question we had was um, what is the risk factors for getting really sick with COVID? And that would help us uh, not only prepare with, you know, how many beds we'd need, but really at the very front end, who needs to be admitted, who doesn't? Are we using, help us use our resources properly? And, um, you know, when I'd heard about the, a lot of these patients who are black or brown, um, vulnerable, um, many of them with a higher body mass index, many of them being male. What we decided to do is go and look at how many people are within a month, two months. We were able to look at all the emergency room visits. And what we did is we kind of sliced and diced the information, looked at different risk factors, and we, came, we were able to come up with a score. And that score, this risk score was ABCM, which is age, body mass index, comorbidities, and male. And very similar to what we were seeing when, when I was talking to that director over in New York. And, you know, we just, uh, we, we took this score and we looked at what the outcomes were based on that score. And, you know, it was a little more complicated as to how we created the score. But basically, in, in just to summarize it all, once we were able to 
find that this score could help predict, we were able to look at based on if they had a score of one, two, three, or four, right? There's four elements, A, B, C, and M. Age over 60, body mass index over 30, uh, comorbidities, which is chronic conditions such as congestive heart failure or kidney failure, diabetes, right? And then male. And then you get a point for each. And what we found is anybody who had a score uh, less than three, two and below, had an incredibly good prognosis, incredibly good prognosis in terms of mortality. And those who had a score greater than that, especially four, did not have a very good prognosis. And what we were able to do in the emergency department to help us was the electronic health records. Right when we register, our EHR, electronic health records, let's say you came in, Nick, and you had COVID, um, we could automatically, the machine could automatically, you already have your age in there. If we took your weight, you have your body mass index and your height. Your chronic conditions are probably on the chart already and it can pull that. And then your gender is on there too. We could actually have the machine create a score. And what we did was we had that score um, available for those um, in the emergency room when they're caring for a patient. And it would be right there on the chart for them to see. And if they were COVID positive, depending on what that score was, of course, if they were really, really sick, you would admit them. But if they were you know, doing okay, um, you could use that score as a tool to help you decide, do they need to be admitted or not? And of course, you know, supply-demand misjudge, we only have so many beds available. And that was a great utilization of that tool. And as time went on, as the months went on, we were able to continue to validate this tool. And we continued to use it um, throughout the entire time, all the way through even while we had the vaccination campaign going on. So we used it during that first surge that we had in March of 2020 to help us. And then what we were able to do is continue to use that that score, that ABCM score, once the vaccines came out, you know, you still had people who had what we call vaccination breakthroughs. They, especially even during Delta, which was that summer of 2021, right? If you, if you remember. And um, when they had those breakthroughs, we saw that the ones who did the worst still were the ones who had a higher ABCM score. So it was really fascinating how that score continued to help us even after the vaccines, the vaccines were, of course, initially with that first, um, with the original virus, incredibly effective. But as Delta came, we saw breakthroughs. But we still saw the ones who were uh, the highest risk were still the ones who had the higher ABCM score. Well, this is just all so fascinating. And the way you lay, out, lay it out is just really easy to grasp and understand. And so going back to when you first spoke with your former colleague in New York, you're talking about what you're seeing, this potential wave that's going to come. Um, you talked about the way that academia comes up with like a plan. Are you at this early stage before you maybe even had a chance to come up with this scoring system? Are you sharing this information with the CDC or do you come up with this score and then share it with them? What type of ongoing communication is it from the beginning of looking at this data to when you have this score uh, in place. Yeah, I mean, this score, we kind of homegrown, you know, it was homegrown here. And um, we didn't really have a chance. We had a chance to publish it into different journals, but we really didn't have a chance to, to, to connect with the CDC. And I think that's an opportunity, quite honestly, going forward, is I think where, um, where the CDC and the local um, hospitals 
um, can, can do better is being able to share some of that data with them so that um, in, more, in, in, a, in a quicker fashion, um, they're aware of what's going on uh, rather than waiting for the information to trickle down to them. So I think that there's incredible opportunity to, to share this data with, uh, with the CDC, um, whether it be you know, uh, COVID or, or any other pathogen that we're dealing with going in the future. There's, there's just a treasure trove of data out there. It's just connecting the right people and a- asking the right questions. Well, it's just so inspiring too to hear that, like you said, this research homegrown here, right here at the public hospital system in Santa Clara County. Part of my job when I was hired here in multimedia communications was to help highlight all of the amazing things that happen here. So this is just further evidence of that. Um, when you talk about ABCM and you are developing this, is the purpose first to, you know, influence what's happening as far as lockdowns, things like this, to show the CDC, for example, what you're finding, or is it to educate the public about how they can look at their own risk factors? What's the primary goal? Yeah, I think initially, initially, honestly, it was curiosity. It was just trying to recognize who's higher risk, right? Because we just didn't have that information yet. And then later, like I said, it became a tool to help us, you know, on the front end decide, okay, this person has it. What's their risk of being admitted? You know, is it, are they safe to potentially go home? Do they, should we observe them for a day if they have a higher risk? It, it was used as a tool. One more place that, was, that we was used is we actually saw those who had a higher body mass index they were actually prioritized to actually get the vaccines early on. If you recall, there was these priority tiers, age and, and body mass index and immunocompromised. Almost a lot of the features of ABCM started developing, right, in terms of how they were going to tier this uh, for, for prioritization for, for the vaccines. I think where the opportunity has always been when you look at these scores for people to recognize, you know, look at the components of that ABCM score. Some of them are not modifiable, right? Your age or your gender. But your body mass index and the chronic conditions you have are modifiable. And I think when it comes to your body mass index, it's not as simple as as saying lose weight because we're all built differently. Um, There's no doubt about that. Um, We all need to find better ways to be able to adjust that body mass index to a healthier range. And I think that's where a huge opportunity lies in our population is um, if we have the level of, um, of obesity, quite frankly, we have and 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 the related health issues with obesity, whether it be diabetes or high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, all of these things, um, you're going to have the risk associated with that, but we're recognizing there's additional risk from uh, COVID. Um, and so that's that's an area that I think really should be explored is we talk a lot about how to mitigate being, you know, uh, using vaccines and therapeutics and social distancing and masking. But the power is right there within the individual to be able to um, risk modify and uh, your body mass index, these other, you know, if you're diabetic, um, the, the, that's the high blood pressure. These are these are examples of what you can go and uh, and modify yourself. It's I think it's empowering for the individual to know that they can 
they can reduce their risk with with um, with things they can do on their own rather than obviously the other other methods we have to reduce risk right now, like the vaccines and so on, which are very important, but you have the power yourself too, to modify your risk. As far as ABCM scoring goes um, and modifying your risk, let's say somebody has a low score, were you still seeing um, some breakthroughs or some anomalies, outliers of people who had a lower score still contracting, you know, a bad case of yeah, COVID? Yeah, no, you definitely, you know, it's not as often that we saw the mortality with the lower scores, but they did occur. Um, and, you know, those are cases definitely worth studying more. Um, and whether there's additional ways to be able to identify who's at higher risk beyond just the these conventional risk factors that we talk about, I think that'll be important. I always say now you could even do, your risk factor should include an I in there. So it should be ABCMI. And so ABCMI would be age, body mass index, comorbidity, male, and what's your immunity status, whether it be natural or vaccinated. And that can even further help um, identify if you're not immunized, that then you're even higher risk, whether it be natural immunity or vaccine-generated immunity. And so you could you could uh, identify now, now that we're post-vaccination, post-Omicron, where so many people have gotten uh, infected, you could probably run the data even further to, to, to modify that, that score to A, B, C, M, and whether you have immunity or not. If you're adding that I, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, immunity through vaccine, immunity through having caught COVID-19, people getting vaccines sometimes have breakthrough cases. So how do you score it if immunity is kind of on a sliding scale? Yeah, I, you know, right now we're still learning a lot, um, but there's no doubt part of the reason why COVID was so dangerous to us was it was novel. It was novel to our immune system. And so much of the the damage that occurred to our lung was beyond just the pneumonia that the the virus created. It was the friendly fire of our own immune system that went haywire because it hadn't never seen it before. So it was basically send all your troops out there to battle this army, Navy, air force, Marines, everything. And then while it's battling, it's creating more inflammation is causing more damage. Now that we have more immunity in, in, and it's not as novel anymore because we're not naive to it. You're not seeing when we see these cases come to the hospital, you're not seeing as much what we saw before, which was this, you know, we call it the cytokine surge and uh, the immunity just going haywire um, and, and seeing all the, the, the results of it um, and, and the damage of it as well. You, you still have your vulnerable that are at risk for that. There's no doubt. But given the amount of population immunity we have right now, I think this is why all the conversations towards going endemic is is going on right now. That has to be encouraging to you know, be at this place for sure. It is. <laughs> it's it's um it's very encouraging. We're seeing what we call a decoupling now, so that's important. So the way I was able to risk stratify people using the ABCM score, and that was really helpful using the data to help us figure out how to risk stratify. We've been able to see kind of the evolution of um of this virus and its severity um, and where immunity has helped us as well. We're in this kind of post-Omicron, post-vaccination, post-high immunity state right now. And with it, what we're seeing is this decoupling. And it is being, every, a lot of people are talking about this. They've been talking about it since 
um, Omicron came. And so I'll give you an example of decoupling. When we first had Delta um, and patients were coming in with uh, COVID, and that was that summer of, um, gosh, it was summer of 2021, I want to say. What we found is of those who tested positive in the ED, almost 10% went to the ICU, roughly. I'm just giving rough numbers right now. Um, When Omicron occurred, we were in a much better state where we were more immunized, vaccinated, and also the the virus itself was different now, um, and the severity was less. And so we saw this decoupling of between whenever the rates of infection went up, what was the hospitalizations and ICU cases doing. And previously, you'd see them go up together, right? But now you saw a little more decoupling between the rate of infection and the amount of people who needed to go to the ICU. And that was very, very encouraging. That that number dropped significantly. And um, as we went into this, you know, BA4, BA5 wave here, summer of 2022, we're seeing even further decoupling, which is very, very encouraging. Um, and and I think we need to continue to follow that, um, this decoupling that we're seeing and and making sure as, as the new variants come out, yeah, we're, we're all going to be at risk for infection going forward. I, I think we will. It, this, is, this doesn't look like it's going to completely go away. The question is, you know, how much havoc it's going to create. And if we have a, a situation where it's, you see this decoupling going on, um, it's, that, that's encouraging. You still have those who are high risk that still need to be protected. It's that simple. So I think all of us have this sigh of relief that we're we're looking at this more endemic phase and you're seeing this decoupling and higher levels of immunity, et cetera. But we can't we can't ignore um, what our job is, which is to take care of those who are vulnerable and make sure we do come out with therapeutics that can help them. And you know, uh, those who have the high ABCM score or don't have immunity are very highly immunocompromised. We just got to make sure that we keep working on them, um, and not just, you know, everyone used the word COVID fatigue. I think that's a bad term, COVID fatigue. I actually don't like that term. I think a lot of the fatigue is just a lot of people get really um, confused by so many different things being told to them, right? How many boosters do you need to take? You know, does Paxlovid work? Does it cause rebound? You know, uh, should we mask? Should we not mask? What's the hospitalization doing? Just people are fatigued by hearing so many messages. I think they want to hear a very, very clear message. And I think the clear message is right now, yes, we are in a more favorable phase, but we have to make sure we take care of those who are vulnerable as well. It's our duty. As Americans, now that we're talking about the variants a little bit, hmm. um, how did you use the ABCM score to? I know we've talked about modeling out things to come as far as variants and and things like that shifting. Is that where the ABCM score is applicable, or is no? That I think separate? ABCM was very helpful for us early on, pre-vaccine, um, even after vaccines when we had Delta, and it, I think it's still helpful in you know as we go forward, uh, and we'll have to study this more of who's going to benefit from boosters. Um, but likely those who are higher ABCM scores, you know, immunocompromised, um, will probably benefit from the boosters going forward. Um, now, who, you know, when, what variant is going to come next? I don't know. Nick, we, none of us know, right? 
what I do know is we have a lot of immunity out there. And that I think is really important. We, we also have good therapeutics out there and, 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 and Paxlovid is a good example of good therapeutics that we have out there. Um, we have to make sure that we have better access to it as well. Um, you know, talk about these things like test and treat, just having those type of things available when we do have these surges of, of COVID that come along, um, especially focusing on those who are vulnerable. So I, I think if we have that, that infrastructure in place, no matter what variant comes along, hopefully we can, we can attack it. We have so many tools right now. Now, everyone keeps talking about that next variant. Will it be, will it be immunoevasive, meaning it will, you'll be able to dodge your immune system? Is it going to be more severe? Is it going to be more infectious? Yeah, that's, I think we all worry about that. And that's why we are still, you know, um, testing for variants and, 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 and trying to share information uh, to see what else is out there. But I am, I'll be honest, I'm very, very um, hopeful given the level of immunity we have, given it's not a novel virus anymore, that we do have uh, good preventive measures out there, um, that we do have good therapeutics out there. But again, as, you know, as a physician, I want to still stress that we still look to our population to be able to take ownership and responsibility upon them to try to modify their risk factors too. That's a big piece of it as well. Well, I think it's encouraging that throughout the various variants that this research has upheld throughout. And so yeah. that's that's just amazing that, like you said, homegrown here. Homegrown here. Amazing. And, and yeah, I think what it taught me is we don't know what's going to come next, you know, and, and, the, and, and I'm not just talking about, I'm not trying to frighten anybody with novel viruses coming along, but even though the ones we already have, the flu, and right now we're seeing surges in something called RSV. And where can we earlier on at the local level, as we start to see, you know, trends going in a certain direction, make sure that we're able to get some of that data out to others to share rather than just a simple phone call and saying, Hey, what are you seeing there? Mm. How do we share the data? Not just making you know, phone calls to to a friend over in New York and say who's in medicine saying, "Hey, what are you seeing there?" That was helpful. Don't get right. me wrong, but how do we make sure we're all sharing that data from the local level to the central level and from local to local as well? I, I think there's a lot of lot of lot of um, opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to ask, what is RSV? Respiratory syncytial virus. So, okay. Um, for most people, it's just a common cold, uh, but what we're finding right now is we are seeing a surge in. Uh, in, in young kids who are getting it, um, that during the period of time that we were social distancing, masking, and, and they weren't able to go to school, of course, we saw very low levels. And now that um, they're, they're back out into the community, um, you know, these, these viruses are making a comeback. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about something called the immunity gap, which is a lot of these, these kids... Um, would have probably earlier on gotten um, exposed to some of these viruses, built up some immunity, but now they're, they've been pretty, um, their, their immunity has been pretty naive. And all of a sudden they're getting hit with all of these uh, viruses all at once. And with a naive immune system, it's gonna affect them potentially more adversely. And so we're seeing uh, a lot more cases. Um, we were looking at the amount of cases here within Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, we saw you know, over a month's period of time, 
about 20 cases last year between September to October. So very early on, very few last year. Now very early on, you know, those cases are up to 300 we saw most recently. And so um, those aren't all requiring hospitalization. That's outpatient included. Uh, but a small percentage of them are going to require hospitalization. The rest of the country is dealing with this already. Their their hospitals are getting filled with a lot of these cases in their pediatric wards, and um, we're already starting to see that uh, uptick. So that's where you know we we need to be able to share this information very quickly. We start seeing uh, these anomalies where wait we didn't see this last year. How do we quickly share it? How do we get the data out? How do we make sure that we're able to prepare uh, quicker and faster as systems? So I was going to ask, as we look to the future, as we hopefully don't experience something else like this, at least for a very long time, the way that this was developed, will this influence the way that research is done as a whole going forward? You know, it's a good question, Nick. I think we always think about research happening, you know, at these academic centers or, you know, government sponsored research and grants and so on. The, the big opportunity right now is what, ever since we've, we've had these electronic health records now, right? We have, like I said, these, this treasure trove of data. Um, you know, having more, more uh, people in the analytics department, more statisticians so that we have um, uh, cleaner data, cleaner uh, reports as well, um, I think could result in uh, a, a, a powerful engine of, of research right at the local level. And I, I think it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity for, for all the uh, local hospitals that serve large populations to be able to, to, to ask the right questions and find answers in the data. I think for people hearing this, I think this is going to be just really encouraging for people in the community who hear that Santa Clara Valley Healthcare has their back in a in a care sense, but also just in a way that we're looking to the future in order to protect the community. People who will look to uh, this institution as a place to come be a resident, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just going to be a really amazing tool for people to listen to and not only uh, look back and say, wow, what amazing research was done here. You know, a lot of tragedy took place, but you know, we're using you know minds like yours to look forward to be able to, you know, maybe prevent some hardships in the future. I think that's just really incredible. So Yeah, a lot we learned, no yeah. doubt. And I think we have to take what we learned and be able to to move forward with it. Um it, to your point, it's it is has been a tough tough couple of years. And um hopefully we can take what we learned and that's the key and be able to help us going into the future. And that that's I'm 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 hopeful, Nick. I really am. That's amazing. Is there anything else that you would want the community to know, COVID-related, not COVID-related? I know you're just a big fan having been <laughs> here so long. Um, right now, there's, the, and as, I, as understandably, there's a lot, of, a lot of attention on just COVID and the disease, the physical disease. But I think right now that parallel pandemic that we were talking about earlier which is the mental health effects that have that this entire pandemic has created, is uh, something that cannot be ignored. I think it's going to need more and more attention. I do. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of it. And it's important that as a community, we socially start to reintegrate as we 
start coming out of it. We've been out of isolation for a while. Uh, I think there's there's opportunity to to better integrate now and have better conversations, healthier conversations. And I think uh, if we can do that, um, I think that's a, it's it's very important to be able to to as a society um, be able to have these good times together too. I think we've silo been in these silos and been having these sometimes very this vitriol with each other, either through the internet or social media. And there's a way to socially integrate again, have more healthier experiences together, together rather than virtually together like we're doing right now. I think that's a good first step. So it's me getting a little philosophic, I guess. Given this past hour, I know that I am even more proud to work here. And so thank you so much, Dr. Karani, for joining today. Uh, we have much to talk about on, on other topics, so I hope you come back to The Beat again. Thank you for having me, Nick. 